Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger. The outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Hello and welcome to The Extra Environmentalist. I'm your host, Seth Moserkatz, along with my co-host, Justin Ritchie. And we are in for another wonderful, wonderful show. I am sitting here with a wildflower Natty Greens beer from a local Greensboro brewing company. Did you listen to that episode 23 with Sandra Katz and then get inspired to go out and find some local ferments? It's true. I went When I was over at the local supermarket, I saw this beer and I was like, hey, this is a locally brewed beer and I want to support local fermentation because I want to be a part of my environment. I want to be my environment. You're becoming your environment, Seth. I am. That's a great thing. I just wish that there was some locally fermented chocolate nearby to complement my beer. I think all we have are locally fermented ideas to serve up. That will have to suffice in place of chocolate loving, but uh, beer and ideas will carry me through this hard time until I can find my own source of locally fermented chocolate. Anyway. I just saw that Italy got downgraded by S&P. Yeah, how about that? What will that do to your lasagna? Does that mean your lasagna is now downgraded? I just put a lasagna into the oven a little while ago, and actually I can hear the beeping of the oven telling me it's completed. But I hope that my lasagna quality is not downgraded too badly. You never can tell with these lasagnas. Did you make this? Seth Moserkatz made it. You mean you made this live? I made it live, dude. Wow. Just like our podcast is made live. Yeah, exactly, with love. The Extra Environmentalist is recorded in front of a live studio audience. Justin, who are we talking to today? Today, for Extra Environmentalist number 24, we are featuring our conversation with Patrick Andrews, who is from the UK, and he works in consulting and also in a company called River Simple, which makes an environmentally responsible approach to personal transportation. And we spoke with him about the human condition and freedom, our institutions, our societies, and his experiences in working for various businesses. And it's really interesting to hear his insights on how to take design principles and put them into a business because so much of what we're seeing around the world right now is the failure of the monetary paradigm. And that's leading directly to the failure of our business systems. But that doesn't mean that business is gonna go away. In fact, what Patrick argues is that business can be a very powerful, transformative force for positive things in the world. It's just that it, like everything else in our society, is constricted by this monetary paradigm and a lot of other complications as well. And so he wrote an article in Fleeing Vesuvius which we featured back in episode 17 with Richard Duthwaite. And Patrick 
in that article talked about using design principles to create a better way for business to exist. We have such potential for using business as a positive changing force in this world. Unfortunately, a lot of times business does not act to its full potential, mainly due to the fact that corporations are only really around to make money for its 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 shareholders. The business does not really think about the welfare of the people it affects and the people it interacts with. To have that kind of fundamental change in what business means to the world is something that needs to be examined, needs to be thought about extensively. And when it, that does indeed happen, it will change the paradigm of what money even means. And that's a really great starting point to jump into the conversation. So we'll let Patrick Andrews take it from here. Patrick Andrews, after moving on from your career working for large corporations and focusing on joint ventures and acquisitions as a lawyer, you focused on new forms of business, mainly working with social entrepreneurs. Recently, you've been working with the company River Simple on their highly efficient vehicle built by a company with a unique ownership structure. Though today, we're here to talk about your contribution to the recent essay collection, Fleeing Vesuvius, entitled Rethinking Business Structures, How to Encourage Sustainability Through Conscious Design. My first job was as a bellboy in a hotel in, in the French Alps and worked in small law firms and huge multinationals in Canada and, and Russia and I worked in a law firm in Australia and I worked in a retailer that did joint ventures in China and Turkey. So I've had quite a lot of travel and a lot of different organisational types too. So I guess that's given me a particular perspective that I guess I'm always a bit surprised that people don't see the things that for me seem so obvious. But I, I guess if you've always worked in one one or two companies, you don't get the same perspective if you as you do if you, like me, you've moved, moved around a lot. We want to start off with like a real big question to kind of set the stage. So Patrick, are humans truly free? If so, were they influenced by and how does the institution shape our set of available choices in our lives? Yeah, the, the, the first sentence in my chapter, the first thing we have to realize is we're not free. I think I've met very few people in, in life who I would consider as free who are able to generally make choices in the moment, free choice about what they're going to do next. I wouldn't consider myself free in that in that sense. A couple of gurus in India I met, maybe one of those was, was somebody who was able to genuinely in the present choose what, what he wants to do. But I think most of us, whether it's genetics, well, there's so many factors which influence our behavior. And I think one thing I've realized is I get quite passionate about the influence of organization structures, but I'm, I've become more and more aware how it's just one of the myriad influences that we, that we get. Our upbringing, our culture, so many different influences. The funny thing is, I suppose, that we're not aware of how influence we are that's part of the whole trap that's why we're not free it's because we're influenced and we don't know it yeah that's very true something i've been kind of wrestling with recently is the rational mind versus the subconscious because i've read i've read that 10 percent of your mind is devoted to that rational frontal lobe that you use on a regular basis to get around to make decisions about what you're eating and so on and so forth but there's a huge amount of information that your brain is processing through subconscious means that you don't even actively understand why you are doing the things you're doing because of that subconscious influence. What role does the subconscious mind have on a person's 
person's life versus their rational mind. What I find is that it's very hard to separate, to say, like the individual from what they're interested in. So I became very interested in organizational structures. And one of the reasons was because I felt I'd been fairly brutalized by my own personal experience within a large corporate. And I worked for a bully who was who, who liked to get his way. I mentioned the 10% and 90%. It's interesting because I saw a, a slide someone put up with an iceberg, which I believe similar figure, there's about 10% is visible and 90% is below the surface. And that was used as a metaphor for what really goes on and, and in, in an organization. And that if the wind blows in one way, say 50 miles an hour, that will have a certain impact on the iceberg. But if the current's going at 10 miles per hour in the opposite direction, you know what is going to go the way the current's going. And so much of what we, we think makes up an organization what we see is this is the visible bit the brand the the product whatever but 90 percent of it is is below the surface so i think there's a there's a real parallel there it's all so hidden and i suppose life can be seen as a journey to becoming free and free being more conscious of what it is that that affects the way we think it's, you know it's all tied in with questions of evolution and looking at what's happening in north africa at the moment with with the movement for freedom people do want to no matter who they are sooner or later they're going to want more freedom it's a very powerful driving factor and part of that freedom has to be just has to be accompanied by greater insights into who we are and what we know and how we behave and why and all these egyptians were tamely doing what mubarak said until suddenly they decided not to perhaps they realized they didn't need to behave that way anymore freedom can be defined in a lot of different ways it's extremely subjective word because if you've never experienced a different kind of freedom then you can't really ever reference that if you've never had that experience in your life then you can't ever draw on that so how do you demonstrate that freedom to people that mind expanding experience that you have through traveling you can find that through talking to lots of different kinds of people you can find that how do you demonstrate that to a, a large group of people and, and try to help them to understand that freedom can be defined in many different ways. I suppose that's one of the challenges I've been wrestling with because I've been polite word is, is passionate about but maybe obsessed is more accurate with the question of why it is that the good people I'd met within big businesses behave the way they do. All I met was intelligent, hardworking, decent people and yet systematically, almost without exception, all of them placing financial interest above the interests of their own interests, above the interests of the planet about the interests of society. You know, why are they doing that? We've reached certain conclusions about the why, but that I can then do about it is the burning question for me at the moment. So starting to write about it is, is the start of that and hoping that people will read that. But more often it's those who are already convinced that maybe read it than those who you want to influence. So the whole question about how you, you get people to, to wake up, if you like, is a, is a really interesting one. I mean, I, I suppose there's lots of ways if you look at life, sometimes it's a crisis, right? If a business is really suffering, for whatever reason, or an individual's really suffering. It was a personal crisis that made with somebody close to me dying that made me wake up and start thinking, well, what, what's life all about? And start really asking some fundamental questions. But so, so, so what is it? In Egypt, it's, it's probably, it seems to be a combination of, A, a lot of resentment, pent-up frustration, a sort of a subconscious awareness of lack of freedom, and then being inspired by events in the next door. So it has to be both this sort of feeling inside, something needs to change, and then a trigger from outside, which provides information, actually doesn't have to be the way it's been. You write that business could be the most powerful force in the world in achieving higher levels of sustainability. Yes. Yet, uh, currently, we see so many tragedies and injustices perpetrated by business why do you think that business could be a very powerful force in achieving sustainability? It's almost like the true original meaning of sin, which is is missing the mark. And it's to me, it's like 
these big businesses it always seems to me there's incredible power there they have the you know very very bright people a lot, lot of good organization but they're just pointing in almost slightly the wrong direction there's nothing fundamentally bad about the people it just feels look look guys just 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 aim a bit to the right you know you're shooting your own people aim a bit to the right and you can hit the right target it may be a quantum leap from the behavior that we're currently seeing which is, so to me, it's clear the behaviour is, in the large, completely wrong. It's just completely the wrong direction. It's the wrong motivations. And so there is a big wakening up that needs to happen. I, I was just being impressed, I suppose, with, in my experience, with, with the power of business, of how it can be very, very powerful. There was a stage I was reading magazines talking about how big companies were ruining the world. At the same time, I was working for one of these big companies, and I would go around in this company looking for the evil empire. Who are the bad people inside who are making this happen? And all I found was just decent people like me. You know, just people who looked like me, sounded like me, who I'd be happy to call friends. But as a system, we were, we were systematically trashing the planet and putting financial interests above social and environmental ones. I think business is one of those fundamental things that make part of human beings it's not just like business is bad just the way business is being done is so deeply flawed why is our business system flawed what is it about the current method of shareholders and corporate governance that structures everything so that there are so many travesties committed by businesses it's, it's absolutely impossible to point to any one it's, it's a bit like trying to explain why is it that i like to drink tea in the morning and part of that's i'm english of course i drink tea and <laughs> there's, you know, there's, there's so many different factors that go into that if you look at Donella Meadows, who was a systems thinker, and she talked about complex systems, she did a paper called Where to Intervene in the System, which is brilliant because it helps to understand when you've got a complex system, there's different ways of reacting. So in her system, one of the ways to intervene, for example, would be something like corporate social responsibility, where you carry on basically not changing very much, but you try and give a bit of your money to charity or for good causes. So not really changing anything fundamental, but you're changing a little bit. At the very highest level of her hierarchy of where to intervene is, is the mindset. If you sort of look at the Western mindset, well, first of all, it talks about patriarchy, so men dominating women, but also you know, the rich dominating poor, the sort of rich men dominating poor men. From that follows automatically, at least according to Karl Marx, which I, I tend to agree with, that when you have men dominating men, you tend also to get men dominating nature. It's just that's fundamental. It's normal to us to think we can abuse nature and not care for her. So in Western civilization, of course, not in um, Aboriginal tribes, but, but that's the way we, we think. So the way we think is so critical in this. We're just used to the rich dominating the poor, capital dominating labor, and male dominating female. And I think part of that is also the left part of the brain dominating the right part of the brain. So logic and analysis rather than intuition and, and emotions. It's all those sort of things, which means which makes us look at a tree and think that that's worthless unless we can chop it down, turn it into matchsticks and sell. Whereas actually, as human beings but that's just one you know, that's one way of thinking that's the shareholder value approach whereas a human being will find all sorts of value in that tree but we're not looking like human beings we're just looking like a brain who's turning everything to money so money is another another root cause as well i'm um, just the, the whole behavior of money the way it's discounted over time so so 100 pounds in a year's time is worth say 90 to us today you'd rather have 100 today than to have 105 in a year's time so that drives a lot of short-term thinking money that you get in five years time is worth not very much so that means a lot of short-term decision making so for example the gm and ford deciding to just carry on making suvs rather than trying to promote more environmentally friendly vehicles because it was just a short-term pandering to the consumers 
rather than thinking what's in the long-term interest of both the company and, and the planet. And then there's a whole structure of public companies, listed companies, where the owners, so-called, are disconnected from the actions. And they've got no responsibility. They've got only power to, uh, collectively, of course, power. Individually, I haven't got much power, but collectively they've got power. But no responsibility, which, which breeds immorality, as far as I'm concerned, if you've got power but no responsibility. So there's a whole load of interconnecting factors and the fact that a lot of those shareholders are then professionals, motivated based on, you know, paid bonuses based on quarterly returns. A lot of them are men sitting in businesses. So there's a whole disconnection. And in a way, if you wanted to say, get very Buddhist about it, it's we're fundamentally disconnected from each other and from nature. And so it's that that allows us to behave so carelessly with, with our, our home, Mother Earth. It's sort of natural for human beings to care for Mother Earth, but that's, we're not doing that. Something's preventing us somehow. People follow as a normal part of their biology. They don't think independently. And I think that's something that, that you're kind of hitting on. It's much easier to follow rather than lead and to not take responsibilities for your actions and to point another person and say they're responsible is much easier. But you also say that these complex systems are made up of people like yourself and like myself yeah. and yeah. good people who have normal lives and, you know, have mortgages and they have kids and they go to school yeah. and all those things. At some point, someone has to step up and take responsibility for the actions of the whole business. Where does that point come? Where does the buck stop? When is it better to take responsibility for a problem and fix it rather than point to somebody else? I've started to think about this more closely, more since I wrote my chapter, particularly leadership, the whole question of leadership. I mean, I do think that if there's so much power that any individual within an organization has, it could be the CEO, but it doesn't have to be the CEO. I'm reminded from your history with the civil rights movement and, and, and who showed more leadership. Is it Martin Luther King or is it Rosa Parks? And actually, I don't think it's a false question who showed more. We need both those types of leadership at the moment. I think what's interesting, I, I've just started to observe how there's so much business literature on leadership. And I think of leadership as being something that can be exercised at any level, the rows of hearts. It can be any individual at any level can make a difference and make a very big difference sometimes. And we have literally thousands and thousands of books on leadership. But, but people don't talk about the opposite of leadership, which I think of as conformity. There's a dearth of leadership. That's why there's so many books on it, because we're so desperate for it. There's not books about conformity because we've got plenty of that. We certainly need more leadership. And I think of leadership as individuals tuning in to their true nature, to their earth mother, thinking, hang on, what I'm doing, I'm playing a part in a system which is just damaging my earth mother and my kids, if you want, you know, take it closer to home, perhaps. But my, my children, my grandchildren, there won't be a civilization left for them to take part in if we keep going the way we're going. I was reminded of the story of, from the 80s, I think it is, at the time of apartheid in South Africa. And some campaigners were saying we should boycott South African goods. And someone working in a checkout, at a checkout in a big supermarket in Northern Ireland saw some South African apple, apples coming past her and said, I refuse to scan these. And no one had particularly talked about South African apples before that. They talked about sport and other sanctions, but they hadn't picked up on this particularly and she made a stand just to somebody at the checkout and it had this huge ripple effect went around all the newspapers and the supermarkets I think they had to respond to take this into account so whenever i think oh it's the it's the ceo or somebody needs to make it make some action it's actually at any level people can make a profound difference if they stand up for what they believe in starting the action to, to stop or start an event takes much more courage than it does to sustain a movement and, and you mentioned Rosa Parks's incredible action to yeah. spark and inspire an entire movement. So does this energy, does this spark come from somewhere? Is it the morals that someone has? Is it recognizing that sense of social responsibility? And then can you know in advance 
the kind of magnitude that your action would have. Like a lot of people now in North Africa are pointing to the immolation in Tunisia that's sparking and inspiring yes. an entire movement. How can we even know what these little actions that we have on a daily basis will echo out and result in these social changes? I spent some time in India and I've, I've, I'm a great fan of, of Gandhi. And he would always talk about not being attached to the, to the fruits of your actions. You never can know what the results are going to be. And you never know when yours will be the straw that breaks the camel's back. Just speaking for myself, because I've been more and more contemplating this question, would I, a friend of mine challenged me and said, would you go and park? We've got a big highway that runs from London up north to, to, to Leeds, the, the, the M1, we call it. And she said, well, would you, you know, you, you, you talk about these things passionately. Would you be willing to take your car with us and park it on this and block this highway? And I sort of took a step back. Oh, no, that's not me. I'm not an activist that way. But I thought about that for a few months. And I thought, well, well actually, no, that's wrong. I've got to be prepared to do that if I think it's the right thing to do. And you never can know. You know, it could easily be if I did that, if I felt it was the right thing to do. I could go to jail, uh, lose my job, whatever. Could have all sorts of imp- implications, repercussions, and, and never know whether that had made a difference or not. You can't rely on that. Otherwise, I think you'd never, you'd probably never start. Or, or it's the wrong motivation. I'm a great believer in going in with the right motivation is critical too. It's got to be really selfless. And it's very hard if you get too attached to outcomes. That's often what people who go into wars do. You know, Tony Blair, I don't know about George Bush, Tony Blair maybe genuinely wanted peace, but he started a war to get it, and all we've got is more war. So he was attached to an outcome and thought that outcome justifies the means. So that's a very tricky road. So I don't think you can do that. I think you've just got to act from your own integrity, your own inspiration. And what it is, where that comes from, I, I just don't know. I'm, I'm, As I said, it's something I've been thinking about a lot and, and, and reading about inspiring people. Vaclav Havel is one who's a brilliant writer on this. He was the president of Czech Republic and before that he was a dissident for years and was went to jail, etc. And he wrote about this as well in an essay called The Power of the Powerless. And he said you can't rely on or shouldn't even aim to change the system. You, all you can do is just try and live as a human being and whatever that means to you and be willing to, to take the consequences, which might be your death ultimately. It's a quite a hard call when you've got a family. <laughs> I'm going to go, you know, I, have kept, I might go to jail for six months or I might go to a protest and who, you know, who knows? I might go on a hunger strike and that's what Gandhi did. But I think ultimately, that's a, the ultimate test, isn't it? How, how seriously are, are we willing to stand up for what we believe in? You only know when it's actually you're called. I guess it's just about having that personal integrity and then when that's violated by something, just standing up and, and recognizing that in a way. I think that's right. And I think you, you just never know where, which sparks can ignite it for others. You just never know when when you'll feel called. Speaking of myself, I mean, I've, I, I was earning a very decent salary as a corporate lawyer. Ever since I gave that up, I've been much more up and down in terms of my income and I had to be much cleverer, more careful with how I spend money. I've no longer got this comfortable check arriving in every month. So that's relatively small sacrifice compared to what some people give up. And actually, you know, life just gets more interesting. But you never know at the time when you're giving things up. So yeah, it's, 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 it comes down for each individual. a time that often seems bereft 
of hope. Our age is indeed an age of much anxiety, suffering, disappointment, and it seems to me that in precisely those times, all of us who seek a better, fairer, more just world need to find ways of reactivating our hope, our hope for a better world, particularly at this moment, the so-called age of austerity that has been ushered in after the banking crisis. The age of austerity is really the process through which our rulers are coming to make poorer and working class people pay for the bank bailout. And we're going to do that through a protracted assault on the budgets that sustain education, health care, pensions, public transit, and so on. As if you didn't have enough to worry about today, a group of leading thinkers in New York last night has concluded that we are headed for a collapse of society. We're joined by Yaron Brook, who's the president of the Ayn Rand Society. Yaron, you had a big fundraiser last night, a lot of big wigs in New York, smart people, so forth, and you came out saying everyone thinks that we are basically screwed. Well, the mood in the room was definitely that, that this country is heading towards some kind of collapse, some kind of significant disaster, that everything kind of is lined up and nobody really in the political realm out there in the culture seems to have the solutions to the problem facing this country and facing the world. I mean, who knows what's happening in Europe, right, and, and how far this can go and whether the European banks can survive. Unless there's alternatives, unless people come up with, with, with real solutions, uh, the crisis uh, could be anywhere from, you know, a major economic kind of depression and we learn our lesson and we climb out of it to, you know, what happened at Rome, uh, which is really is, you know, the dark ages. Now, I, I don't expect that. I think I think we'll rebound. I think we're smart enough to figure this out. I think the culture out there is capable of changing philosophies, of identifying, you know, the, the right way. But I think we have to remember that civilizations in human history, studying history is a value. If you study history, civilizations have declined, they've disappeared, and other civilizations have risen up. And sometimes in human history, just mankind has gone through long periods of time of just struggling, of, 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 of it being very hard to survive. Undoubtedly true. I hope we're not headed for that. I but hope <laughs> we're not, too. Believe me. Thanks, Yaron. In the United States alone, 44 million Americans are now on food aid. That's one out of every seven people, roughly, in the country, in the wealthiest, most powerful country in the world. According to a study released last year, 50% of all children in the United States will rely on food aid at some point during their childhood. Where poor people, oppressed people, working class people in one part of the world after another do stand up, resist, mobilize, pool their energies, work together, create bonds of solidarity and resistance, they are also very often pioneering really, truly exciting experiments in radical democracy. 5,000 people in Atlanta waiting hour after hour, putting on their best clothes and their best face forward, hoping today's job fair would be the one to land them an interview. There were so many people desperate for work trying to get to this job fair. Traffic here was backed up for miles and miles. Thousands waited overnight. Some camped out in their business suits and office heels in the stifling heat. I got here at 9-12. I got in there at like 1.58. Authorities treated 20 people for heat exhaustion and were struggling to keep the line moving and get people moved inside. He came out here to get a job. 
not to get sick. I'm going to be positive. That's the only way I can be right now. Tunisia is quite interesting. As a dictator is toppled, as an old regime starts to collapse, as officials associated with the old order are forced from office, this raises the question, well, how are people going to run things now? If you also get rid of the corrupt officials in one city and town after another, this, of course, creates a vacuum. And one of the truly remarkable things about events in Tunisia is the way in which, at the grassroots level, thousands upon thousands of ordinary citizens, working-class people, have really reinvented their administration. It is the youth who have forced out the regime-appointed mayor and set up a committee that now controls the town. They are organizing nascent institutions of local democracy, a concept that has never existed in their countries. Two days after the National Revolution, the Zarzi's protesters held an election among their ranks to form a 20-person revolutionary committee. Then they held a town hall meeting with almost everyone in Zarzi's attending to decide how to create a non-authoritarian municipality. Virtually all of Tunisia's old regime-appointed mayors have disappeared. So have most policemen. Garbage is collected by voluntary agreement. And in a great many towns, people have had the chance to reinvent the way they are managed. On the streets of thousands of towns, people are simply taking matters into their own hands. Over here's my punching bag. Another uh, stress reliever. Angelo Villanueva, a mason who lost his last job about a year ago, is among dozens of jobless and homeless Americans who have resorted to this, trying to make a home here in the woods. You think of a homeless person, you think of some wino out in the corner, but it can happen to anyone, anyone at any time. Villanueva stays in shape in the gym he built as he hopes for a pickup in the economy to help him get back to work. Oh, it's horrible, so depressing. Marilyn Berenzweig is a textile designer who worked in New York just two years ago. She and her husband Michael, a former public radio producer, have been living here for 16 months, victims of the jobs recession. The homeless who have created a home here maintain their hope of returning to society. And while things are in some ways more complicated in Egypt, I think we need to remind ourselves of what was going on in Tahrir Square and in other cities across Egypt. The activists in Tahrir Square had created popular prisons to hold undercover security forces that they had detained. They took over a travel agency and they actually detained about 300 of these undercover policemen in one single day, turning them over later to the army. They created people's clinics to care for the wounded. Doctors, nurses, medics, and others came in and in alleyways literally just built small makeshift clinics so that people who had been injured by these attackers could be looked after, could be given some medical care. In the same spirit, the movement formed People's Protection Forces, staffed, interestingly, by women as well as men, 
to provide safety and security in the neighborhoods and in the mass marches and assemblies. They also created daycare centers and kindergartens in Tahrir Square itself. One journalist writing about this noted that people would break into small groups, groups of several hundreds. They would then discuss and debate. Having done that for a while, particularly they would discuss and debate what should the demands on the government be? Not just get rid of Mubarak. What else do we want to demand? Having had these discussions, they would then elect delegates who would go to consultations among all the people who had come out of these sort of breakout groups within Tahrir Square. And then, as one journalist explained, quote, Delegates from these mini-gatherings then come together to discuss the prevailing mood before potential demands are read out over the square's makeshift speaker system. The adoption of each proposal is based on the proportion of boos or cheers it receives from the crowd at large. In other words, we were witnessing there as well, in the heart of the people's rebellion in Egypt, a creation of new democratic practices that were truly participatory in the most meaningful sense. And one of the reasons, I believe, that the army has not been able to demobilize the people in Egypt is because of how transformative that experience has been. The army has issued one edict after another saying that workers must stop their strikes and day in and day out, thousands and thousands of workers take strike action in Egypt. And by the way, those strikes are not just against their poverty wages, although they are and they appropriately should be, about their poverty wages. But very often, they're also demanding the removal of authoritarian managers. They are demanding that members of the boards of directors of their companies, who were tied closely to the Mubarak regime, have to stand down, that they have been politically compromised with a brutal military government, and they therefore must leave. They have been demanding free and independent trade unions rather than the state-run unions, which was all that was allowed during the Mubarak era. And so I believe a key reason that these protests have continued, as well, of course, as the large demonstrations across the country, is because people tasted their own power. They felt their capacity to change the world. They experienced that movement from feeling helpless, atomized, and powerless to feeling that they have the capacity to make a difference, to shape their lives, to come together in new communities of resistance, in new solidarities and remake Egyptian society. I've talked to activists who were involved in Tahrir Square and over and over again, they all say without any prompting, there is a new pride among the Egyptian people. They hold their heads high. For so long, they were ashamed of their country. They were ashamed of the corruption, the brutality, the military repression, and so on. And now they're proud of what they have achieved. They know that they have made history and that they continue to make history. Good news threatens people with change. Bad news merely enables them to enjoy the grief of their neighbors. There's a great euphoria pours off the bad news 
item that makes people who read it or see it feel, ah, there but for the grace of God go I. And so I talk about all of these events because I think they are about the principle of hope. I think in all of these episodes, we are seeing the abilities that ordinary people have to stand up against poverty, against injustice, to seize the stage of history, and to begin to create wholly new ways of organizing their lives and their societies. And so in what are often very difficult times for us, as we experience what an age of austerity means, the high unemployment levels, the reduced bus service, the terrible cuts to education, which will, for instance, see class sizes as large as 60 in Detroit schools as a result of the closure of half of the city's schools. When we live through an era like that, it's easy to become demoralized. It's easy to become despairing. It's easy to give up hope. But I think all of these episodes are reminders that ordinary working class and poor people, the people who actually make our society work, who make it function, who drive the buses, teach our children, work on the assembly lines, care for the sick and the elderly, that these are the people to whom the future belongs, that they have immense creative capacities to reshape and remake our societies and our world. And that's why I think we need to dig up these lessons. We need to tell these stories of resistance, solidarity, and hope, because they show us that another world is possible, that we could reorganize the societies in which we live, and particularly these days, as the old way of doing things, the old order, offers so little to us, I think it's important to recall that there is hope, there is capacity for change, there is the possibility of new, freer, and more just societies. You are listening to The Extra Environmentalist. Today, we're talking with Patrick Andrews on rethinking business structures. We're going to focus in now on, on some of the alternatives that you wrote about in yeah. your essay. What is it that could lead a business to taking a creative or beautiful action? And why is it that when we want change in a system, in the corporate system, we so often target executives? We target executives in the, in the existing system because it's nice to look at big corporations. I mean, some of these, a lot of this stuff applies to smaller businesses too, but big corporations are such a nice example of the extremes. And if you take a, a Walmart, you'll have, I don't know how many people as shareholders in Walmart, if you particularly if you follow it through from the funds who invest in Walmart. But you look back and there'll be millions of people have a stake in, in Walmart, maybe tens of millions or hundreds of millions with, with all the various funds. Then you have a board of, what, 12 or 15 people, mainly men. How do the shareholders, who are said to be, you know, in legal theory, they're the owners of this business... How do you own a business that employs two million staff? Well, how do you do that? How do you own a share of a person? So the only way they can sensibly even consider, think of controlling this is to have a small group of people they can focus their efforts on. So that's a board. You've got to have some sort of focus for them. So it's a board. 
And then you have these 12 or 15 men and maybe the odd woman. And then you get this layers of hierarchy below them. So it's normal. That, so it's all the power and information is focused, is concentrated, heavily concentrated in this narrow bunch of men. And that's incidentally one of my theories is that the reason we get so little diversity on the boards, not just lack of women, but lack of young people, lack of ethnic minorities, etc., is because it's such a difficult place to sit. With all that's so stressful that the only people who'd want to sit there are a sort of alpha male, you know, it's, it's, it's certain type of people who'd want to sit on these boards. So I think it's sort of normal that we focus on, on the boards. They're very, very healthy because they're also, because they're in this critical position, often feel personally quite powerless. Because also to, what I've seen as politicians too is that in order to climb up the ladder, most of these people have to sacrifice a certain amount of their integrity along the way. You have to make promises to people in order to move up. So any integrity and power these people had is very often given away before they reach the top. And so once they get to the top, and very often the motivation might have been, I'm going to do some good, I'm going to create something of value. But that's diluted the further they go up. Now there are people, you know, exceptional people who are able to make it while still retaining their integrity, but most of them don't, I think, in my experience. And so they just feel powerless. So you try and get them to change, and it's just hopeless. So it's how you create new businesses. I mean, it's come back to this question of freedom, how free do people feel to change? So that John Lewis, which is one of the companies I mentioned in my chapter, it was set up in an ordinary way with, with an inspiring founder. Then it was passed on to one of his children. And this chap then really took it forward and then gave the business away effectively or sold it for a very, very low, very, very reasonable price to the so that was fairly exceptional. This person felt, for whatever reason, an enlightened owner gave the business to the staff. Where's that going to come from? Margaret Wheatley talks about, and I think I share that view that it's very unlikely we're going to get radical change from the existing large corporations, as as GM and Ford should have failed already or will fail. And so you're either in the, in the hospice business or you're in the midwife business. Midwife, you know, giving birth to new inspiring organisations because the old ones are on their way out. And I, I subscribe to that. So the interesting stuff for me is is in new organisations. Though I think there's also plenty of good work to try and improve the way big businesses work, but I'm not sure that you're going to get fundamental change there. It's got to come from the new ones. Then where can somebody put their foot down and say, we as a company, as as my part of this company, is not going to have this happen in my name. There, there's no way that I can... Yeah. I, I'm going to it's interesting, happen. isn't it? Because does... It's very interesting. I, I do think, I mean, like this story I told of earlier of the checkout girl in Northern Ireland deciding to, she, wasn't, she was no longer going to sell South African apples. I do think leadership and, and change can be inspired at any level. I'm, I'm convinced of that, that you can get these inspiring people who can make change, which can have a ripple effect throughout the organisation. But the most authority rests in the at the top levels. I quoted a CEO who was saying, yes, in my chapter, yes, I'm, I'm concerned about the world. Yes, I think the world's falling apart, but, but hey, what can I do about it? And that's, 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 that's amazing. Though I think that is the experience of, I mean, I'm, you know, it's sort of appalling in a way, but it is the experience of some of, a lot of these business leaders, I think. I think they feel sort of slightly overwhelmed and under huge pressure from all sides, from shareholders, etc. And in a way, it's funny. I, I thought, how would you make a change if, if you feel you've been put into this job to do certain things and you've agreed to do that? So, you know, in a way, you've sold out already just to get that job. What do you do if you can see that actually something, something different is required? I did think he could, for example, sell his gas-guzzling SUV and and start bicycling into work. Something like that can be very powerful because I mean, setting an example just by being an example is often the most powerful way that change happens. You do hear stories of individuals within organisations who just do step up and, and stand up for what they believe in. But it is quite hard for the organisation to, to tolerate that 
because either the organisation has to has to adjust or, or, or the person has to be kicked out and very often the person finds the pressure too much and gets kicked out. So I don't know, I mean I'm struggling with this question myself at the moment whether I'm just starting to try to re-engage with, with large businesses because I think that there's some interesting work to be done there and I don't particularly want to be just on the sidelines. I mean River Simple is a very great thing to be involved with and has the potential to make massive change but my, my role has been made on the governance side and I want to go out and take this, take this further. So if I was sitting down, I do know a, a chief executive of a, of a very large retailer in this country and was thinking of getting in touch with him again and, and asking for a chat. But what I'd say, still formulating what I'd say to him, because part of the difficulty is that as an institution, almost the definition of an institution to me is an organisation who's got to the point where the survival of the, that institution is more important than the purpose it was set up to achieve. And that's the difficulty that you, you get into conversations with people who work in large businesses. And that's their starting point is this organisation has to be going forever. So that then let's look at the sustainability stuff. And it's just a very bizarre starting point, but that's the reality of these institutions. So how do you start talking sensibly with somebody who, be, who, who has that mindset? Well, so what about the planet? Isn't the planet or, or human health or our civilization isn't that more important than the survival of your organisation? Don't speak that language. So I think it is very hard. And I've certainly found that it took me a few years, having left the corporate environment, to, to really start to, be, to, to think more freely because you're just so brainwashed in a way. Your information within the organisation comes from within the organisation by and large. So it's really hard to see from a completely different perspective. And everything so think, is undertaken simply to provide value in return for shareholders that's always the rationale that's given for all of these actions so it well, just always limits well, your, right. your spectrum of options I see it as a spectrum it's almost like these people they'll go outside and they'll see the whole rainbow but within the corporation they only see a very narrow spectrum of colors they just don't see the rest. It's, it's not even as if they're, they're consciously discarding it. They just don't even see it. That's the really sort of spooky, scary thing. That's what I was trying to say by saying we're not free, is they just don't see it. You just do not have the conversations. Is pursuit of shareholder value a good thing? It's just or the same with corporate governance. I think having a board is a huge weakness of the big company. This idea that 12 or 15 men and, 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 a, and a woman can control somehow, you know, an organisation with 50,000 or 100,000 or a million people is, is quite bizarre, really. And and, you know, a network makes much more sense than a hierarchy in that situation. Maybe you could explain some of these organizational models, like uh, what a social enterprise is, maybe the difference between shareholders and stakeholders, and then maybe speak a little bit about River Simple's structure and what makes it different. I see a, a social enterprise and its business with a purpose. And I talked earlier about the mindset and how that seems to influence people. It's these hidden assumptions we make about the way the world is. And so many business people seem to assume that the purpose of business is, is making money. So I find completely bizarre, but that's the assumption. Whereas social enterprise starts from a very different point of view. It says business is very powerful, as I said earlier. Let's use that to do something worthwhile. And that's a social enterprise to me. And so making profits, in, just like breathing air is important. As a human being, you don't get up in the morning and that isn't your purpose for being is to breathe. But you do need to breathe to, to live. So making profits is important, but it's not, the, it's not the most important thing. So that's what I'd see as a, as a social enterprise. And I think that what a lot of social enterprises tend to do, and certainly what River Simple and many of the organizations I admire and talked about tend to expand the definition of the organization. So I think in a typical shareholder-owned business, you might think of the, if you define the organization, it might include the staff and the board and, and the shareholders. And then everything outside that, the customers, the, the suppliers, the, the, just those, the 
organisation interacts with, but they're all a means to an end to generating money to, to give to shareholders. Whereas I would say, well, no, the suppliers and the customers are all part of the organisation too, and we need to include those in our definition of the, of the, of the organisation. And then give them some formal say in, in how the business is run, in the strategy, in who's appointed to run the business. And then so, so in River Simple, what we've done is we've said there's a community of people involved with this business, and we've grouped them into six because you've got to group them somehow, which is the investors and staff and customers and suppliers and then the neighbours we call them which is the local community it may be central government and then the environment and so we've said because you are part of the community of interests involved in our business you have a right to have your voice heard at the highest level of the organisation so not an advisory body but you people who represent who speak for you will appoint the board and so the board members know that they are accountable not just to the shareholders. And I think this is this is a really important point that who can fire you? If you're writing your list of things to do today and you're a bit stressed, maybe top of your list is, you don't write it down, but keep my job. And who can fire a board? Well, it's only the shareholders. Whereas we're saying that's wrong. That, that, so therefore, you're going to work very, very hard to keep the shareholders happy. Whereas we're saying that you have to balance the interests of the investors, of, of staff, of customers, of the, of the environment, and balance and protect each of those. Because what's the purpose of the business? The purpose, the purpose of the business is, is to, just to serve all those interest groups and balance them in a, in, a, in a healthy dynamic, connect them all together. And then, so we've necessarily diluted the, the, the control of investors, but we'd like to think that they still have a strong influence, but they'll benefit in the long term, we think. So we still aim to make money for investors. That's not the purpose of the business, but it's one of the side effects. The purpose of the business, by the way, is to, to systematically eliminate the negative environmental impacts of, of transport of personal transport. So build vehicles for independent transport while systematically eliminating the environmental impact of, of transport. So that's our purpose. And so the way we do that is run a business and to, to build vehicles and lease them and so on. And then having weakened, if you like, diluted the influence of the shareholders, one of the likely consequences was that the, the power of the board gets even greater. And that's a, that could be a danger because one of the weaknesses of the structure, as I've mentioned before, is, is this power of the board. So we've created what, what we call a compound board, which is you separate out some of the functions that the board normally carries out and you, and you give them to other bodies. So we've created a a stewards council, which is doing auditing, because normally the auditors are appointed by the board, well, nominated by the board and appointed by the members, but affected by the board, as a monitoring role of the board. And the idea is that it's, it's, it's an independent eyes and ears to report back to all the, the stakeholders on how the board's performing. So one of the things that's common weakness of this current structure is that the board hold an AGM and they, as somebody put it, they mark their own scorecards. They go along to the AGM and say, we've done a fantastic job, guys, this year. And there's nobody with the intimate knowledge of the business who can correct them. So it's very rare you get a real genuine discussion at an AGM. Whereas our intention is that the stewards will come along and say, well, actually, we think you haven't done so well this year in these areas. And you're doing very well in some other, some other areas. So try to create, try to divide the power of the board up a little bit rather than all focused in one group. And that should also we reduce the, the chances of groupthink because there's huge weaknesses that are ca catalogued by psychologists in, in the way groups work together. And very often they make lousy decisions when you get a group of, group of people together um, time after time. And one, one way of improving the quality of decision making is to have an outside party to give a different perspective. So that's the purpose of the stewards. And then there's a sort of a whole extra dimension which we, we haven't studied in great deal yet, yet, but once we have several factories, we'll have to be working out how we take the stakeholder model and bring it down to, to each factory, for example. So if we have a, a factory in the south of England and, and a couple in the north of England and a few in France, etc. 
how are they going to be locally managed as well as being so being part of a network so definitely we're, we're interested in, in sort of the networks rather than hierarchy you need a certain amount of hierarchy i think but it's, it's reducing that and and connecting people much more locally to so this thing about connection we, we try to reconnect so connect people into their local community to their local customers to the local government and, and give those people a formal say in how the business is run get accountability to get feedback improve the quality of information improve the quality of decision making i think it would just be better business it's it may be idealistic but it's definitely we think it'd be better business it's not it's not a huge sacrifice in terms of profits we don't think quite the opposite so i would i'd like to conclude with just asking you to give some advice to people on all the parts of the business journey the student starting out out from college, that corporate executive who's just getting his first executive position, maybe you could just step through the whole life of a business uh, employee and, and kind of just give some advice about what they should be thinking about as they progress through their career. What, what I've observed that, that seems to work is, or what seems to work for, for me at least, is first of all, it's, it's trying to get a space within which to get a different perspective. Now, I, maybe I'm a bit unusual. I've taken a year off every seven years. It's very hard to get perspective on what you're doing when you're within something. So I think being willing to looking for different perspectives, different different ways of seeing what you're usually seeing breaking out from your normal, whether that's taking a really interesting holiday, somewhere new, talking to somebody you wouldn't normally talk to. A, fr- a friend of mine runs something called Leaders Quest and takes business people out to developing countries and gives them a week of meeting people in Brazil, for example, a whole week of meeting people in the favelas and business people and fund managers, etc. I think that's an incredibly powerful experience. So so really be open to looking for different perspectives. And that's quite hard when you're in your youth surroundings so I think that's part of it and without getting too deep into spirituality but I think certainly the people who are able to to be most effective and most achieve the most but in, in the right way to me are those who've got some sort of higher purpose in, in life so one of the CEOs I admired the most was, was, was Jewish, had a strong faith and sort of recognized that even though he had 7,000 employees that it was it was all pretty small in the in the scheme of things um, so I think maybe that's about perspective again. But I think just finding some way, some people do it through meditation. Some people do it through the one CEO I knew used to, he had 90,000 employees, but he would have a retailer. He would make sure at weekends he would go and visit stores and go and chat to people behind the desk because he knew he couldn't just rely on his head of marketing. So I think just just trying to find out because that's because then and then you've got to try and tune into your own conscience and your own leadership. So it's it's how you find out what what, you know, what makes you tick. So just trying to tune into that and just try and connect with with the little voice inside you which is speaking, but you often just just drown it out. Just make just make space. Just stop in a way and, and read varied books just wander in the library I used to just sometimes just go to a library and just just stop and then ask my feet to guide me and then just see you in the design section or architecture or history and just find and you'll always find something that was related to business and life and the problems I was addressing I was I was grappling with so I think just just be willing not just to stretch yourself a bit all of that comes right back to the main message of our, our podcast which is just taking a different view on human systems and getting outside of that mindset that's imposed on you by your culture and being able to understand that there's different ways of thinking and different ways of being. It kind of comes back to the the first question we asked about the rational mind versus the subconscious, letting that subconscious kind of take you around, letting your rational mind sit on the side. Hang out out in nature. That's the best way. Oh, I, I absolutely agree with that, Patrick.
wraps up our conversation with Patrick Andrews on change, freedom, business, how trapped CEOs are, the ability for even low-level people like a clerk at a grocery store to say no to South African apples. So many wide varying topics on using design principles to reorganize business. So what really stood out for you in that interview? I do like the fact that it doesn't take a CEO to make changes in the structure of a business. All it really takes is that one or two people inside your business to to get that raised bed ready for change. So when it does come, it takes root and grows and flourishes and and can change your business in, in radical ways. In many ways, the CEO is the most tied down of all the employees. He has the most power, but in a lot of ways, he doesn't really have much power because he has to report to the board and he has, he has these charters and these laws that, that set up his corporation that actually fence him in. Back in North Carolina, when I lived there, a lot of angst and energy was being focused at the CEO of the utility company back in North Carolina because of the coal plants that the company was building. And so many people vilified him and made him into an enemy. And really, he wasn't the person who was going to be the one making the decision on the coal plant. Let's say that he as the CEO said, I'm not going to build that coal plant, what would happen? What would happen is that the board around him would take that decision and say, well, you're not positioning our company to perform in the best of possible means. And we're going to go out and find another CEO who will build that coal plant. We're going to go and find a CEO who will do mountaintop removal and blow the lid off of that mountain and get the coal out of it. So often our CEOs look like they have power, but they're just as trapped by the monetary paradigm, the monetary system that we use of infinite growth, of compound interest, of fiat currency that every single one of us are. And the problem is that even our power elite are trapped by the system that's been running along. We have a media that reinforces these ideas. We have a monetary system and a capitalistic outlook that makes these ideas part of what it means to be an American. What it means to be a world citizen in a lot of ways is embracing these large monetarily driven ideas. What we lose when we have all these financial fiscal expansionary policies is what happens to the person who's not able to participate or are too poor to actually you know, participate in these large systems they get exploited and they get taken advantage of and the system just kind of rolls over them. And in the break that we had about how the poor around the world, the people who keep our society running, the person you see at the you know Wendy's drive through or the person who's doing your laundry at the dry cleaning, those people have tremendous creative potential to go in Russia Square, like in Tahrir Square in Egypt, and create a new society there. He was drawing on all of these examples how these delegations would form and people would sit together and talk about all of their issues and their demands for the government. And then they would go and report back to another portion of a larger assembly. And they were forming democratic units right there on the spot with no overarching structure. It was a rising. And what made it interesting was that he drew on an example from the original Greek form of democracy, which didn't just mean rule by the people, it also meant rule by the poor, the everyman, the lowest parts of society. And we see so much disenchantment and disillusionment, kind of like one of the clips we had in there. It was a guy in one of the tent cities in New Jersey, and he's been out of work for a long time, and he lost his job, and he's still trying to fit into the system. And the thing is, in a lot of other countries, the poor in those countries have realized that 
they can't fit into the system. And so revolution is the only option. But at least in Canada and the US, people still think that they can go out and seek employment and find jobs. And for a lot of people, it does come true. Things really haven't gotten that bad yet. And over the weekend, we saw the first attempt at doing a Spanish style public occupation of a town square in New York. Over and over again, we see how large business fundamentally is part of the exploitation of, of smaller countries. And we see that in economic policy, we see how it just fundamentally seeks out these weak or non-incorporated parts of our society and tries to mold them into the same kind of shape as what the more advanced or westernized society is like. So Justin, we talk a lot about these big ideas on the show and how they are so much a part of our cultural identity that trying to extract one part of yourself makes you question what it means to be a citizen of a nation or a citizen of a country or, or you know, working for a large corporation. Do we have solutions to these problems? Do we have solutions that make it better to work for a corporation? Do we, do we need to change the fundamental idea of what it means to work for a business? How do we tackle this huge, huge problem? What's interesting about companies that are so big, like say Coca-Cola, for example, is it's easy to get frustrated at them by their business practices. But on the other side of the equation, a company like Coca-Cola is so large that there's literally no part of the world that they can't worry about. If there's a problem in the Amazon that's destroying their influx of coca leaf imports, or if one of the countries in Europe goes down because its debt's been downgraded and it collapses, suddenly that's a huge piece of its market and their business model can't absorb that shock. So in a lot of ways, corporations, these massive mega multinational corporations are some of the biggest perpetrators of injustices on the global scene. But I don't want to completely give up on them just because they have tremendous power for change. And even just a small percentage basis can really change things. However, the reality is they're all tied in and hooked into this monetary system that's the real evil that's behind all of these things and it's a silent evil because we like to target these brands that are committing these atrocities but the reasons they're committing these atrocities is because they're working within this monetary system so it's not the fact that business or profit is fundamentally evil or bad business or profit can be great positive forces for change it's just that the way they're hooked into the monetary paradigm makes them into destructive forces it's too bad i wish that these large corporations and governmental organizations and all these things be doing good things for our world instead of being so negative. And one of the things we spoke with Patrick Andrews about was how change can actually occur. And one of the things he said is that, first of all, you have to have that spark from the outside that requires the change, kind of like the immolation in Tunisia. And that immolation wasn't what made the entire revolution happen. It was the spark, but it was the conditions of awareness, the conditions of poverty, the conditions of oppression, the conditions of poor food access or spiking food prices due to the rising cost of oil that laid the groundwork. And you never can predict what the spark will be. And so often we set out with an intention at the end and we work towards that outcome. We drive all of our actions to reach that outcome. But by doing so, we often get distracted from all of the positive things that are happening all around us in the path from point A to point B. And so perhaps by not focusing so much on the outcome, we can often make 
really incredible things happen. That's a very positive outlook, Justin. And I think yes. that more people need to adopt that idea. If people want to find out more about these ideas, how can they find out more about The Extra Environmentalist? Well, people can check out our website at www.extraenvironmentalist.com. Check us out on Facebook, on Twitter. And more and more of you are downloading the podcast and listening to us every month. And that's really uh, an incredible, rewarding thing to experience. And there's nothing more special than checking the inbox, getting a listener mail, and having someone say something about the podcast. I don't even care what you say. Just the fact that someone listens to something that Seth and I are putting together is really a special experience. So thank you so much for listening. Yeah, and these podcasts are not easy to put together. So uh, if you would like to leave us a voicemail or even you like to donate some money to the podcast or if you'd like to leave a voicemail on the podcast, you can leave us a voicemail at uh, 919-701-9872 and we will play your voicemail on our show. And that will be an extra super incentive to be a part of the Extra Environmentalist. You'll you'll get a mixtape if you leave us a voicemail. Of course, to get the mixtape, you have to let us know your contact information. Or I could call you back and play it to you live over the phone. That's also an option. If you like our skits that we've been putting in at the end of these shows, leave us a suggestion for a skit. If you want Justin to sing a, a lullaby or some sort of rap, that is also an option for you to recommend. It makes us happy. It does. It just makes us happy. And you know what? If it makes us happy, you should be doing it because we make you happy. And this is all about sharing the love. It is about sharing the love. But more, more important than even anything else that you can do, go on iTunes, leave us a review, or post a link to a web form or something else that you follow and tell others to listen to the podcast. It's amazing what reading through an article and posting a link to the Extra Environmentalist can do because so many people will read through the comment section of that article and then check the link. So it's it's a great way to turn people onto the show if you want to share it. It is. And on that note, I need to go get my lasagna out of the oven. <laughs> and on that note, we decided to use saffron. start tonight by reassuring investors and calming the markets. For starters, everybody close your eyes, take a deep breath, and just pretend there is no place called Greece. <laughs> We're all gonna die. I'm sure you've heard it all before, but you never really had a doubt. time on the extra environmentalist school is training in doing things you don't care about for the sake of an external reward now why is that important well because most of the jobs on offer in our society are the same you do something that you really don't care about that much but you're made to care about it you're paid to care about it you're doing it for an external reward and that in a way was necessary in the industrial age when most jobs were really unpleasant. Even if you were a, a white collar worker, you know, you, 
picture these rows of clerks and accountants filling out numbers, you know, with their green visors on. There's just a lot of really routine work or assembly line work. Or even if you're at the top, you know, like how much do you really care in your heart about, say, you're a marketing executive, you know, about increasing the market share of Crest over AIM or something like that? You only care about it because it's associated with money. Essentially, we have an educational system that's designed for a world in which work is unpleasant or counter to our nature. But I think everybody has experienced situations where you want to work, where you're doing something and it's not just consuming and being entertained, but you're doing something creative and productive. And it's not for the money, it's because you really want to do it. The most frightening thing is almost nobody here really understands the sort of danger the global economy is now in. It's extremely frightening. We have uh, bankrupt countries uh, we have uh, a European Central Bank which is underwriting junk sovereign debt with taxpayers' money. So do you think this is a contagion that could spread further across Europe? How can it not? How can it not? Uh, Portugal's broke, Greece is broke, Ireland's broke, Spain's semi-broke. The French are talking a good story, but if you look at the numbers, the French are in no better position. Uh, if you look at the numbers, you'll see that the French three bailouts that they've agreed is round about the equivalent to two-thirds of the entire year's French income tax. This is going wrong, as it was always bound to do. It's a failed project. It's a failed currency project. Fiat currencies are falling across the world. Gold isn't rising. People think gold is rising. Fiat currencies are falling. And I tell you something else, if I may. This has been a political project from the beginning, and I would have the people responsible incarcerated in jail at this very moment. Okay, uh, strong... Um, uh... Accusations that the ECB is a virtual bank. There's no lender of last resort except the taxpayer, and the taxpayer is already rebelling. They're rioting in Greece. I gather today that they're rioting in Rome. This simply can't go on. This project has no political democratic mandate. It is doomed to end in tears. It's just a question of exactly when, before Christmas or after Christmas. Coming this fall to extra environmentalist broadcasting, Survivor. Detroit! Jerry, the ex-auto worker. Yeah, man, I lost my job, and I don't, I don't know where to get another job. I like my job. It was a really great job, and I don't have a job anymore. Johnson, the CEO of Johnson & Johnson. Well, um, I'm sorry, but uh, you're going to have to give me all your money, and uh, you're not going to be happy about it. The Detroit School Board Commissioner. Um, everybody, let's go. We have to go to class now. Time to go. Oh, I'm sorry. All the school's been canceled because we have no money. Alex Jones. We have to figure out what to eat before the New World Order tells us what to eat. And Alex Jones's mother. Alex, go find yourself a nice little girl and settle down. Maybe make a little oatmeal and have a little fish. You know, it's good for you. And Sean Connery. The day is mine. Today, one of you will be voted out of the safe house into the dark streets of Detroit to face the roving bands of cannibals and gangs. Are you prepared to meet this challenge? Man, this reminds me of when I was working in the car manufacturing plant and I had to go to the break room to cut my finger off. You must salvage as much garbage as possible from these abandoned Detroit houses 
And then next week, we will show you what happens when one man goes up against an angry mob with only a toothbrush. Survivor. Detroit! Coming this fall on Extra Environmentalist Broadcasting Network. Detroit! After finding Forrester, my career never really went up. And now I found myself in a collapsing Detroit. Now, you know, Alex was once a superstar radio star, Sean. What did you do when you were in the movies? It turned out I got captured by a FEMA camp. And my career was never the same. Oh, that sounds like a real pity.